Chapter Seven of No Great Magic by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. I know death hath ten thousand several doors for men to take their exits, and tis found they go on such strange geometrical hinges. You may open them both ways. The Duchess. There is this about an actor on stage. He can see the audience, but he can't look at them, unless he's a narrator or some sort of comic. I wasn't the first, Grendel Grox, and only scared to death of becoming the second, as Sidney walked me out of the wings onto the stage, over the ground-cloth that felt so much like ground, with a sort of interweaving policeman grip on my left arm. Sid was in a dark gray robe, looking like some dismal kind of monk, his head so hooded for the doctor that you couldn't see his face at all. My skull was pulse-buzzing, my throat was squeezed dry, my heart was pounding. Below that my body was empty, squirmy, electricity stung, yet with the feeling of wearing ice-cold iron pants. I heard, as if from two million miles, when was it she last walked? And then an iron bell somewhere tolling the reply. I guess it had to be my voice coming up through my body from my iron pants. Since His Majesty went into the field, and so on, until Martin had come on stage, starry-eyed, a white scarf tossed over the back of his long black wig, and a flaring candle two inches thick gripped in his right hand, and dripping wax on his wrist and started to do Lady Mac's sleepwalking half-hinted confessions of the murders of Duncan and Banco and Lady Macduff. So here is what I saw then, without looking, like a vivid scene that floats out in front of your mind in a reverie, hovering against a background of dark blur, and sort of flashes on and off as you think, or in my case act. All the time, remember, with Sid's hand hard on my wrist, and me now and then tolling Shakespearean language out of some lightless storehouse of memory I'd never known was there to belong to me. There was a medium-sized glade in a forest. Through the half-naked black branches shone a dark coal sky, like ashes of silver early evening. The glade had two horns, as it were, narrowing back to each side and going off through the forest. A chilly breeze was blowing out of them, almost enough to put out the candle. Its flame rippled. Rather far back in the horn to my left, but not very far, were clumped two dozen or so men. In dark cloaks they huddled around themselves. They wore brimmed, tallish hats and pale stuff showing at their necks. Somehow I assumed that these men must be the rude fellows from the city I remembered Beau mentioning a million or so years ago. Although I couldn't see them very well and didn't spend much time on them, there was one of them who had his hat off or excitedly pushed way back, showing a big pale forehead. Although that was all the conscious impression I had of his face, he seemed frighteningly familiar. In the horn to my right, which was wider, were lined up about a dozen horses, with grooms holding tight every two of them, but throwing their heads back now and then as they strained against the reins, and stamping their front hooves restlessly. Oh, they frightened me, I tell you, 
that line of two-foot-long, glossy-haired faces, writhing back their upper lips from teeth wide as piano keys, every horse of them looking as wide-eyed and evil as Fusley's steed, sticking its head through the drapes in his picture The Nightmare. To the center the trees came close to the stage. Just in front of them was Queen Elizabeth, sitting on the chair on the spread carpet, just as I'd seen her out there before, only now I could see that the braziers were glowing and redly highlighting her pale cheeks and dark red hair and the silver in her dress and cloak. She was looking at Martin, Lady Mac, most intently. Her mouth grimaced tight, twisting her fingers together. Standing rather close around her were a half-dozen men with fancier hats and ruffs and wide-flaring riding gauntlets. Then, through the trees and tall leafless bushes just behind Elizabeth, I saw an identical Elizabeth face floating, only this one was smiling a demonic smile. The eyes were open very wide. Now and then the pupils darted rapid glances from side to side. There was a sharp pain in my left wrist, and Sid Whisper snarling at me, accustomed action, out of the corner of his shadowed mouth. I told on obediently, it is an accustomed action with her to seem thus washing her hands. I have known her continue in this a quarter of an hour." Martin had set down the candle, which still flared and guttered, on a little high table so firm its thin legs must have been stabbed into the ground. And he was rubbing his hands together slowly, continually, tormentedly, trying to get rid of Duncan's blood, which Mrs. Mack knows in her sleep is still there. And all the while he did it. The agitation of the seated Elizabeth grew, her eyes flicking from side to side, hands writhing. He got to the lines. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh! As he wrung out those soft, tortured sighs, Elizabeth stood up from her chair and took a step forward. The courtiers moved toward her quickly, but not touching her, and she said loudly, "'Tis the blood of Mary Stuart whereof she speaks, the pails of blood that will gush from her chopped neck. Oh, I cannot endure it!' And as she said that last she suddenly turned about and strode back toward the trees, kicking out her ash-colored skirt. One of the courtiers turned with her and stooped toward her closely, whispering something. But although she paused a moment, all she said was, Nay, eyes, stop not the play, but follow me not. Nay, I say, leave me, Leicester. And she walked into the trees, he looking after her. Then Sid was kicking my ankle, and I was reciting something, and Martin was taking up his candle again without looking at it, saying with a drugged agitation, To bed, to bed, there's knocking at the gate. Elizabeth came walking out of the trees again, her head bowed. She couldn't have been in there ten seconds. Leicester hurried toward her, hand anxiously outstretched. Martin moved off stage, torturedly yet softly wailing, What's done cannot be undone. Just then Elizabeth flicked aside Leicester's hand with playful contempt and looked up, and she was smiling the devil's smile. A horse whinnied like a trumpeted snicker. 
As Sid and I started our last few lines together, I intoned mechanically, letting words free-fall from my mind to my tongue. All this time I had been answering Lady Mac in my thoughts. That's what you think, sister. End of chapter 7